last message in the Kingdom Sexuality series. So just a reminder, if you have young kids, um, we're going to be discussing the subject of homosexuality this morning. So if you've got young kids and you want to check them into children's ministry, now would be the time to do so. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Like I said, it's our last message in our, our fall series, Kingdom Sexuality. And so we're turning our attention now to the topic of homosexuality. Before we do that, though, I want to start with a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your word. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Your word is truth, and it carries the full weight and authority of all that you are. Lord, we want your word to inform our minds and our hearts this morning. We want to be shaped by it. And in your word, I pray that you would give us a sense of what is true and what is right at the same time giving us a sense of the remarkable compassion you show for all of us, no matter the nature of our brokenness in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let the gospel shine through in your word this morning. For the glory of the name of Jesus, we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you can relate. I have a few times where I can think back and have sort of those cringe-worthy memories, kind of familiar with what I'm talking about, you kind of think back to your life and there's those moments that you can think of, maybe you've got just a couple of them, maybe you've got like a whole book full of them, but they're memories you kind of think back on and every time you think of the memory, you just sort of shudder. <laughs> I can't believe I said that, I can't believe I did that. One of them that comes to mind for me, it actually came to mind freshly as I was preparing this message, I hadn't thought of it in a while, it was an interaction I had with a friend named Kristen a while back. The interaction was over the topic we're going to look at this morning, the topic of homosexuality. And Kristen and I were engaged in really sort of an ongoing discussion, debate, you can maybe even call it, on the topic of homosexuality. I was interested in the topic because I was young and I was passionate and I felt like truth was on my side, and I just, I just love a good debate. <laughs> so, so I was excited to be debating the topic. But for Kristen, it was intensely personal. Her uncle, someone she was incredibly close to, was a homosexual man living in an actively gay lifestyle. Kristen was a believer, but she was struggling with the topic of homosexuality. What did it mean for her uncle that she loved? What was going to happen to him when he died and he stood before God? And so we went back and forth and discussed and debated and in my youthful ignorance, I was oblivious to the fact that while my facts were all in order and my exegesis seemed to be impeccable, I was completely crushing her with the way I was going about the argument. At the end of the day, I, I think I did a great job presenting a biblical case for how we should understand homosexuality. And I did a horrible job of showing her the compassion and love of Christ in the midst of that discussion. So it's one of those cringe-worthy memories. <laughs> Thank the Lord there's grace for cringe-worthy memories. I mention this because I want to stress from the outset this morning, it is explicitly not my goal to do that with today's sermon. 
But that's not my goal. I have, I have no desire to raise up a righteous horde of argument winners, armed with biblical truth and confident in the Scriptures, and totally oblivious about how to carefully, wisely, and winsomely engage not just the culture, but more importantly, their neighbors and their co-workers and loved ones. Because if we're really honest, I doubt that any of us are going to go out from here for our scheduled appearance on CNN to debate somebody on this topic, right? I really doubt any of us are going to be doing that. Most of us aren't going to be called to the front lines of shaping culture in regards to this issue. But we will be called to no less a significant task of standing firmly on the truth of God's word while at the same time extending the love of Christ to people who are often confused, sometimes angry, usually hurting, and even confrontational about the issue of same-sex attraction and homosexuality. You probably have faces coming to mind right now, even as I speak. Finally, before we go any further, I just want to address any in the audience who might be someone struggling with same-sex attraction. I don't for a second want to assume we don't have anyone here who would fall in that category. I want you to know that I believe with all of my heart that the gospel offers you hope this morning. The gospel offers you hope. Some some of the things we're going to look at in God's word, I don't doubt that they will be hard to hear. Maybe you've struggled and tripped over them in the past. Maybe you've avoided them. Maybe as soon as you heard me say, we're going to be discussing the topic of homosexuality, you started glancing for the door and trying to figure out a way to make a clean exit. I want you to know I have no desire to use this as a bully pulpit. The last thing I want to do this morning is to make you feel isolated or alone, as if you're sitting in a room full of antagonistic people. I want to encourage you to resist the temptation to check out right now. To resist the temptation to think you're going to hear all that same old stuff again. I want you just to offer me your ear. That's all I ask. To offer me, lend me your ear, lend me your heart for the next 45 minutes and hear what God would have to say about this subject and hear the hope that he offers. Having said that, now turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 16 through 27. Romans 1, starting in verse 16. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For in His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." 
For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The word of the Lord, may he write its truth upon our hearts. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to first zoom in out of all that passage to the specifics dealing with the issue and topic of homosexuality. So we're, we're going to zoom in to verses 24 to 27. And then as we go on, we're going to slowly zoom back out to look at the passage as a whole, to see how Paul frames the topic of homosexuality with the context around it. We'll have four points and then some concluding application. The first point that we see as, as we zoom in, in verses 24 to 27, is that homosexuality, living a gay lifestyle, practicing homosexuality, is sinful. That's, that's Paul's point. Homosexuality is sinful. It's a sin. There's really no way to soften the blow of that. Verses 24 to 27 lay out clearly that same-sex attraction, men for men, women for women, isn't how God intended for people to relate to each other sexually. More than that, when people act on these desires, they're engaging in things that don't please God. That's what it means when we say it's sinful. They're doing things that displease God. Romans 1 shows us that the desire for men to engage in sex with other men and women with women, or, or to to change and alter their gender, to dress in a way that would make it appear they've altered their gender. All of those things are, are forms, when you come down to it, of rebellion against God. That's part of what sin is. Sin is rebelling against God, rebelling against His rules. Verse 25 shows us how it's rebellion against the way God has, has created the world. It says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It's fundamentally exactly what happens in the garden. The serpent comes, the serpent tempts Eve, says, here's all the things God has told you, cast those aside, receive the fruit, receive my lie, rebel against your creator. That's what's happening over the issue of homosexuality. There, there's rebellion of what, against what God has, has created, against God's good creation, against what God has said is, is true, and right what God has said is a blessing sexually. Now, a common objection to homosexuality being sinful, you've probably heard it before, is that Jesus, Jesus in the Gospels, He never talks about homosexuality. You, you say homosexuality is sinful, 
But I'm about Jesus. And Jesus never talks about this subject. What do we do with that argument? One of the things I want to do this morning is to help you kind of navigate your way through some of those arguments in regards to this topic. So, so what do you say to the person who says, Jesus is loving. Jesus is accepting. Sinners flock to Jesus. Jesus doesn't care about sexual orientation. You go to Romans 1 because you have to. You have to go to Paul's prejudices to find a passage to talk about this. You couldn't find one in the Gospels. Along with this is sort of the, the companion argument that says, you look at this book, it's a, a thick book, really thin paper, lots of small ink, which means there's a ton of words in it, a ton of, a ton of books, a ton of chapters, tons of verses. A tiny, tiny fraction of which, of which actually address the topic of homosexuality. If homosexuality is such an important thing, why do we barely see it in Scripture? The argument goes. Why is it just a handful of places? If it's not a common theme, how can you be so sure it's wrong? Well, I want us to think of that question in light of the rest of our series. If you're a guest, this is your first time here, hang with us. I encourage you to go back and listen to the rest of the series. One of the things we've seen, even in the first two messages, was we looked at God's design for sexuality. Do you remember where we get, went to look at God's design? We went to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and then we noted that when Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament authors talk about things related to sexuality, they invariably, consistently, every single time, point back to Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus never explicitly mentions homosexuality. But he does loudly and consistently affirm God's created designs for sexuality. He consistently and constantly and loudly affirms traditional marriage as God lays it out for us in Genesis 1 and 2. In Mark 10, 6, on the topic of marriage, Jesus says this, But from the beginning of creation, in other words, from the beginning of the way that God designed it, God made them male and female. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Another way of saying that last verse is to say, therefore what God has designed, let not man try to improve upon or manipulate. Jesus is unequivocal in his affirmation that marriage is between a man and a woman. But, but here's the other thing I would say to that. Even if Scripture said absolutely nothing about homosexuality, there, there's no Romans 1, there's no Leviticus 18, there's no 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all those verses and the verses like them that would get cross-referenced, all of them are just gone from the pages of Scripture. even if they weren't there. The arguments regarding marriage are so consistently saying in Bible that marriage is inherently between a man and a woman that we would still have grounds to make the argument that homosexuality, that a gay lifestyle is out of bounds. Here's what we know from Scripture. 
Set aside the ones talking explicitly about homosexuality. Any sex, any sex, any sexual activity, heterosexual or homosexual, outside of marriage as God defines it, is out of bounds. We see that in God's Word. Now add to that the fact that the Old Testament and the New Testament do address the issue of same-sex attraction, the issue of homosexuality. We see it's clear. Here's the other thing I would say. When someone says, there's hardly any, any verses that talk about it. That's not an argument in favor of the Bible having little importance to say about homosexuality. The fact that there's relative infrequency doesn't weaken the argument. It's simply owing to the fact that for ancient Israel, this was an obvious given. They don't spill a lot of ink on the subject because no one's arguing from the opposite side. 500 years from now, if someone looks back at the United States of America, it's a really poor argument for them to say, no one cared. No one cared about the rights of little children to be able to read. When I look around at the literature being produced and and the hot-button topics of that day, no one was out there fighting for children's literacy. Why won't they see those? Because everyone agrees it's, it's good for children to be able to read and write. The silence on it is because it's a settled subject. Now, you go back three or four hundred years, and you see people arguing for the need for literacy. But, but today, most Americans take for granted that we want kids to be able to read and write. They should have access to education. They should be taught how to do their letters so they can have access to information, so they can learn. We see that same thing going on in Scripture. So we see homosexuality is rebellion, but it's not just rebellion. Paul's point is also homosexuality is a perversion. It's a perversion of God's design for sexuality. Now, if you're someone who feels those same-sex proclivities, this is one of those spots where I'm talking about, please just listen, hear what I'm saying, and hear me out. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. These, these dishonorable passions, what the NIV calls shameful lusts, are an exchange of what is natural sexual expression. Natural sexual expression. Designed for for procreation, designed to show the physical complementarity between men and women, that they fit together. We talked about that early in this series. Those things are cast aside for what's contrary to nature. Sexual coupling that, that can't produce children. Sexual coupling that, without extensive creativity, doesn't fit together. The unnatural nature of homosexual desire is an obvious expression of the way we distort and warp God's design for sexuality. That's not to say homosexuality is the only way we distort it. But it is to say it's an obvious one. It's one where we can see plainly and clearly how it has been distorted. 
In Jude 7, the warning of eternal judgment is given to those who repeat the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then it goes on to articulate what that sin is. It says those who indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That the man of Sodom and Gomorrah stood outside of Lot's house and demanded that his guests be sent out so that they could know them, so they could sleep with them, so that they could express their homosexual desires for those men. It's unnatural, Jude says. It's contrary to nature. It's a distortion. In the context where homosexuality would have been most widely practiced by the surrounding culture, so you think of the New Testament books, you think of where they're kind of directed, they're they're named after the cities where they arrive. If you were to pick a city where homosexuality would be most widely embraced, most similar in some ways to our current cultural surroundings, it would have likely been Corinth, Greek Corinth, a long history in the Greek world of the acceptance and the celebration and even the promotion of homosexuality. That's part of what Greece celebrated. So in Corinth, this this cosmopolitan Greek city-state, homosexuality was accepted. And in the letter to Corinth, Paul writes, he repeats, homosexuality is out of bounds for those who call themselves Christians. He says specifically, the men who practice homosexuality, quote, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on, he actually, he actually creates a new word to describe what homosexuality is. He combines two other words that speak to the practice, one of which talks about the passive partner in the homosexual act, the other which talks about the active partner in the homosexual act. He combines the words and says, those who practice, whether the passive or the active, those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't care if you're living in Rome or you're living in Corinth or you're living in Jerusalem or you're living in Africa or you're living in Johnson County, Kansas. Those who do these things, Paul would say, who live within this lifestyle, who embrace them without repentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. Having said that, we need to be careful. When I say that homosexual practice and and same-sex attraction is a perversion. I am not trying to stir up in you the yuck factor. The yuck factor is that homosexuality is wrong because it's disgusting. And the people who do it are disgusting. You shouldn't shouldn't agree with this. You should be against this. You should be pro-traditional marriage because it's so gross what they do. That's the yuck factor. The yuck factor is lazy argumentation. It's just a lazy way of thinking. Now sin, all sin, every sin, is gross. Greed is gross. Anger is disgusting before God. All of those things fall into those categories. But far too long, people have relied on merely the yuck factor in their argument for why homosexuality is wrong. And here's the problem with this. Not only is it really lazy and a really lazy way of thinking, it no longer works in our culture. 
one of the things that's happened in the last several years is that homosexuality has lost, by and large, for much of the culture, its yuckiness. If that's all you're relying on in discussions about this topic, you will be losing most of those discussions. Because for years now, people have been seeing TV shows and, and movies where, where men kiss each other, where women kiss each other. They go to the mall and they see women holding hands, right? Right? They, they see images in magazines that show two men getting married. It normalizes a gay lifestyle. It decreases the yuck factor. It was never a good, sufficient argument to begin with, but we need to realize, especially for our young people, it now rings hollow. They're used to seeing those things. Paul's argument doesn't rest on the yuckiness of homosexuality. It rests on its rejection of God. And like all sin, homosexuality isn't satisfied with just a small corner of your heart. It wants to devour us. Romans 1.27 says, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, just here and there, just a couple times, just a smattering of events. No, they gave up natural relations with women and they were consumed, devoured, overwhelmed with passion for one another. We see this, the way that sin devours us, the way that sin wants more and more and more of our hearts clearly in the passage Paul's referring us to. We see it within our culture. Most people who are living out same-sex attractions, if you were to ask them, how would you define yourself? Who are you? I'm meeting you for the first time. Give me a couple words to kind of give me handles for who you are as a person. What's one of the things they're going to say? I'm gay. I'm a lesbian. I'm a transsexual. I'm questioning. And they hold on to those labels. In part because of what we see in Romans one twenty seven, Those natural relations that they've given up for unnatural ones have now consumed them. It's not just a little corner of their heart. It has a grip on all their heart. When people engage in, in homosexual acts, when they surrender to same-sex attractions that they feel in their hearts, they're losing control. And the unrestrained lusts and giving yourself over physically to urges, it's no different than the man who goes to find the prostitute. That man is completely consumed by his lust. That's why he's doing that. It's no different than the husband who is just raging around the house, throwing things and yelling and screaming and the family is cowering in the corner. Consumed by his sin. Please hear this again. I'm not preaching on the sinfulness of homosexuality because I have a deep-seated desire to make more things out of bounds. 
I'm not here on this topic because I want to kind of extend the list of things that we're not supposed to do. I just love long rules and long rules lists, and so that's why we're doing this sermon. But that's not the motivation. I'm not trying to be a contrarian. I'm not trying to go against the grain of what the culture is doing. And neither is Paul and neither is Jesus, neither are any of the authors of Scripture. They're denouncing homosexuality because it's destructive. Now, if you're a gay person or you're someone who who feels those same sex urges, that's probably really hard to hear. But if it's true, if God's word is true, if what Jesus says is true, if what Paul says is true, and it is, if those things are true, and these sort of things do lead to destruction and destroy the individual, it's not loving to tell you that it's not destructive. It would make us complicit in your being destroyed. A common refrain today from progressives to libertarians, from activists to those who simply are sick of hearing about the debate is, why do you care so much about homosexuality? Why are you talking so much about same-sex marriage? Why can't you just allow people to do what they want to do? Who's it hurting? If it's not hurting anyone, just get out of their business. All over the the political and cultural spectrum, you'll hear people saying those things. Well, the answer is because God's word tells us not just that sin is wrong, but that sin is dangerous and it is destructive. Destructive to the person who's caught in it. Our culture might celebrate greed, but greed is destructive. It paralyzes and darkens that person's heart. To pursue ultimate joy in material things that can never provide it. And will ultimately lead them to reject their creator. To reject the savior sent for them. And send them hurling down the pathway of destruction. Greed is destructive. And so as a church, we preach and we speak against greed. We don't want to see people destroyed by it. We don't want to see them consumed by it. We don't want to see them, we don't want to see them perishing. And it's the same with this topic. Ultimately, sin isn't just wrong, it's destructive. It leads to death and condemnation. But even before death and condemnation, sin and a life that embraces sin involves a thousand little deaths. And that's why we speak against it. We also see that idolatry is the main issue. Homosexuality is a sin, yes, but idolatry is the main thing Paul is concerned on. As we continue to zoom out, we actually find commonality with those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Those who don't struggle find that they're on a common footing with those who do struggle. Romans 1 is so significant because it broadens the topic. Romans 1, 18-32 is not primarily about homosexuality. The major subject is idolatry. Verses 19 to 23 are talking about the fact that they've exchanged worshiping the Creator for worshiping created things. Homosexuality is just Paul illustrating the point. Broadly, all people have done this. 
narrowly, here's an example of what it looks like. The major issue is that we're worshiping the wrong things. Our sin-deceived hearts have exchanged the Creator for the created. And so Paul uses homosexuality as a real-life illustration to show us the spiritual condition of our hearts. You want to see what your hearts are like? Let me show you with this. The point isn't to single out homosexuality as a super sin. That's not what Paul's doing. His point is that gay persons in the exchanging of natural relations give us a bodily representation of the spiritual condition of everyone. Does that make sense? Not that this is like the super sin, the insane sin. Can you believe what they're doing? But no, saying, in looking at this, we see a bodily representation of what every fallen human heart does. It exchanges what is good, what is natural, what is wise, what pleases God, for what is unwise, what is unnatural, what is perverse, what is destructive. Our sexual deviation displays our spiritual depravity. It's not just homosexuality that stirs up God's wrath. It's all of our idolatrous, sinful cravings. So idolatry is the central concern. God doesn't have an axe to grind against gay people. He has an axe to grind against idolatry. And it says He gives them up to what they desire. He's giving them up to the things they're worshiping. He's giving them up to their empty pleasures. He does the same with all of us, whether they're sexual pleasures or monetary or relational or emotional or physical. He allows us to experience the darkening, the decreasing satisfaction of our misplaced worship. It's the tragedy of what happens in the fall. I, I find this quote really helpful. I'm going to talk about this woman later, but it's by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She wrote the book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She says this, Sexuality isn't about what we do in bed. Sexuality encompasses a whole range of needs, demands, and desires. Sexuality is more a symptom of our life's condition than a cause. More a consequence than an origin. Homosexuality, like all sin, is symptomatic and not causal. That is, it tells us where our heart has been, not who we inherently are or what we are destined to become. Which leads us to the third point. Homosexuality isn't unique. Paul's point is not that sexual sin in general and homosexuality in particular is like this off the Richter scale kind of immorality. Now there's like some things you do and it's just like a little tiny tremor. And then there's homosexuality and the, it's just going nuts. The bars are flying off. That's what's happening. Don't you see that in Romans 1? That's not Paul's point. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed against those yucky, disgusting gay people. No, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not unique. All sin is rebellion. So if you're sitting here this morning and, and you're someone who, who you, you've never articulated it, nobody knows. But in your heart of hearts, you know, I battle this. 
And I've always felt so strange and isolated because of it. Paul is saying, God is saying, I'm saying, you are in a room of people who are fallen. You are in a room of people who know what it is to have besetting sins. Who know what it has to have sinful inclinations in particular directions that seem to consume them. You're not alone in those difficulties. The heart of the flamboyantly gay 45-year-old lesbian, the heart of the 14-year-old boy, overwhelmed by the way he feels towards other boys, scared to death of what other people think of him, those hearts are no different than the heart of the guy habitually lying. The heart of the woman consumed with gossip and slander. It's easy to read Romans 1 and feel like you are just loaded for bear in combating homosexuality. I used to go to the text for that reason. You know, it's like getting your your ammo. It's like, go to Romans 1, baby. This is a big magazine. Locked and loaded. These are like armor-piercing, uranium-plated bullets. I am ready. Romans 1 isn't a 40-kiloton nuclear bomb against same-sex attraction and homosexual lifestyles. It's a 40-kiloton nuke against all unrighteousness. The point of Romans 1 is that it highlights the incompatibility and the insanity of all our sin, of all of our idolatry. Paul has set us up. He wants us to read Romans 1 thinking, yeah, get him, Paul, again, again. He is nailing them. Because then he comes to Romans 2.1. Therefore, you, in my cheering section, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves. Not because they're not guilty, but because you're guilty with them. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things, you're an idolater too. We know that the judgments of God rightly fall on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, O self-righteous critic, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? 3.23, that famous verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the great Romans 1 setup. It's this, Paul is, he is doing all of that to get us just this frothing at the mouth fury. Yes, go after them. Because he wants to humble us in what comes next. Because he wants to create common ground. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, if you are in the midst of a lifestyle where you're practicing it, Maybe in front of people's eyes and they know it, and maybe it's behind closed doors. It's secret Craigslist hookups that your wife doesn't know about. It's some other secret little relationship you have with with a coworker. There is commonality here. You can share. You can find help. You can bring those things out into the light. Because like all forms of unrighteousness, the gospel is big enough to defeat them. 
That's the great hope we see in this passage. I want you to know if you're struggling in that way, there are pastors here who would talk with you about it. Who would listen. Who who would hear, who would be willing to walk with you on the long path. Not just schedule a quick 30-minute session, give you some cheesy quick fixes and then send you out the door. I say all that not because we are like God's gift to counseling. I say that because the gospel is greater than homosexual sin. Because the gospel is greater than all of our sin. Romans 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God. Not my letter, not my preaching, not, not my ideas. Not my ability to win debates and arguments. No, the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation, for redemption, for forgiveness, for washing, for declaring people holy, for seeing them complete the transformation process to be glorified before Christ when he returns. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the barbarians. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You live by faith. Understanding I am broken, whether it's greed or it's anger, whether it's slothfulness, whether it's homosexuality, whether I've already had the operation to change my sexual gender. The gospel has the power to transform and redeem. There is hope available in Christ for anyone who believes, anyone who turns to Jesus in faith and repentance. One of the biggest points of contention in this debate over the question of is homosexuality a sin or not is the question, what causes homosexuality, right? What causes homosexuality? Is it birth? Is it choice? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Most gay people will tell you they have no sense of choosing to be gay. I didn't choose this. I didn't choose to have that horrible conversation with my parents where I wasn't sure if they were going to accept me or never talk to me again. I didn't choose to feel just out of sorts in my teenage years. They say those things because it doesn't feel like a choice to them. On the other side, people argue it's not biologically determined. They point to to studies of identical twins. Identical twins, the exact same genetic makeup. Biologically the same, and yet they're not 100% correlation between one twin who's gay and another one who's heterosexual. Well, what does all of that tell us? Is it birth or is it choice? Is it nature or is it nurture? Here's what I would ask. Does it matter? <laughs> I had a, one of our youth tell me a story just a couple months ago, sitting in a class at JUCO, and the psychology prof or sociology prof, it's just it's sad that he was as trite as he was. But you know, to those of you who think that people choose to be gay, here's an assignment for you. Go out, and in the next week, if you're heterosexual, choose to be homosexual. Boom, I win. That was kind of the stance he took. Now, setting aside just 
the immaturity of that argument. <laughs> He's got a point. The church has tended to paint itself in a corner by crying out, they choose it. In other words, it's your fault and you could change it if you just wanted to. Does it matter if it's, if it's birth or if it's choice? Is the alcoholic a drunk because he chooses to be? Or because he's born with a genetic predisposition to it. And if you look back, his father's a drunk, his grandfather's a drunk, his great-grandfather's a drunk, his family has this litany of drunks in it. Why is it? Or is it a mixture of both? The human heart is deep. I don't know that we know. But now, he's built up years of habitual lack of self-control. And you know what? Whether it was a choice, or it was genetics, or it was a little bit of both, he finds himself trapped at 50 and completely enslaved to alcohol. The biggest concern isn't whether he was born this way or he chose it. The biggest thing is he's trapped in it. Think of this question more generally rather than specifically about same-sex attraction. Do we often choose to sin? Do we find ourselves trapped in besetting sins and unable to figure out exactly how we got so entangled? Are we all born with a sinful nature? A bent towards rebellion that we've all inherited? Do our individual broken hearts express themselves in unique sinful proclivities? Unique ways where we're drawn to certain kinds of sins. To all of those questions, I would say yes. We sin because we are born sinners. We've inherited Adam's rebellious nature. And we sin because we want to. We sin because our hearts are complicit in it. We're not just passive rebels. We indulge the flesh because we choose to do so. Our nature and our choices often lead us to deep levels of enslavement to sin. It's not just a description of somebody struggling with same-sex attraction. It's a description of every person who's ever lived prior to regeneration by the Holy Spirit, which brings us back to there is hope in the gospel. I don't know why you have those feelings. And I don't think the reason why you have those feelings is exactly why another person has those feelings. But I know the gospel is powerful to save and redeem what is broken. There is possibility of change. People struggling with same-sex attraction but who've never actually walked it out, there, there's possibility for change. People who have, have experimented and, and dipped their toes in the water, there is possibility for change. People who are decades into the gay lifestyle, as entrenched as you can imagine them being, they're like the, the, the stereotypical image you have in your head of what a gay person is. That person, there is hope for change. Because salvation is possible for any who believe. And if that's true, then redemption and transformation and growth and holiness are possible as well. Those are part of the package of salvation. Now this is an important thing because it, it's ingrained in gay people and those who are listening to, to, to the gay movement. It is proclaimed as the gay gospel truth that change is not possible and not necessary. But Christ's defeat of death was a defeat of sin's stranglehold on human hearts. Whatever the shape of sin. Here's the other thing I would say to that. 
again, if you're struggling with those things, I am not trying to be trite, and I am not trying to be naive. I am not trying to pretend that it's just easy. Just do it. (laughs) Just change. Just ask Jesus into your heart, and then you'll be different. You won't feel that way anymore. Now, that's, that's a broken way of thinking. That leads to young people growing up in the church and, and feeling like they have these, these thoughts and these, these, these urges and wanting more than anything for them to be taken away and they're not down dark paths of, of suicidal thoughts and rejection of the church and their families. I think change is often a long process. Whether you're an alcoholic, the greediest person in the room, or someone given to homosexuality. It's rare that there's immediate deliverance. In part because in God's sovereignty, He wants us to rely on His grace, not just on day one of the fight of faith, but on day 100, day 1000, year 100. I understand it's a battle against an ingrained way of thinking and long-standing habits. If you've been in the gay lifestyle for a long time, it means you've really built up a habit of giving in to sinful thoughts, of operating in a fashion of no self-control when it comes to those areas. It takes time for those habits to be broken and changed. The quote we read earlier from Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She was a professor at Syracuse University in queer studies. She had a Ph.D. in queer studies. She was entrenched in the gay culture. She was a committed lesbian. She was a poster child for the gay academic on the front lines of American universities promoting the GLBT lifestyle to the students who would come through her doors. She loathed Christians. She thought they were ignorant. She thought they were poor thinkers. She was actually in the process of writing a book on just the foolish epistemological ways that the religious right went about making its arguments. So basically, she's writing a book to say, Christian people are bad thinkers. And here's why. Here's the evidence. In writing her book, she wrote an article for the local newspaper. Now, this is back when it was still really controversial to do such a thing. And so she was inundated with letters. Tons of letters of support, tons of hate mail. And she kind of created two boxes. Support, hate mail. And then she said there was one letter that she couldn't categorize. It was a letter from a local pastor. He didn't affirm what she had said. He didn't spew hate at her. She was intrigued. She wrote him back. A relationship started. She came to visit his church fully expecting weirdos that were going to reject her. She encountered warm people, hospitable people, caring people, compassionate people. Fast forward Years later, this, this committed lesbian PhD in queer studies vanguard of fighting the religious right is now a redeemed woman, saved, expressing faith in Christ Jesus, and a pastor's wife. But when I say change is possible, I don't presume upon God's grace. When I say change is possible, I'm not guaranteeing you your story is going to be Rosario's story. 
we don't know how or to what extent God will, this side of Christ's return, eradicate same-sex attraction in each individual believer. Are there some people who are able to ex- experience a total change of orientation and sexual attraction? Yes, there are. I, I have two pastor friends who have experienced that. Well, that doesn't mean their stories are identical. And it doesn't mean they don't walk without a hint of temptation. Likewise, there's no guarantee God will remove the temptation of same-sex attraction from any individual who comes to Christ. The person who's addicted to pornography before they're saved, do they never sense the temptation again? Sometimes I've heard some pretty cool stories, but not most of the time. The promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel isn't that we will be freed from ever sinning again immediately once we're born again. The promise is that because of faith in Christ's atoning death, because of repentance for our sin, we've been forgiven of all our trespasses. We've been washed white as snow. The promise is that you have been redeemed, you have been reclaimed, and you are in the process of, varying degrees of of fast and slow, of being renewed. Even as each and every one of us still limps along in a fallen world, battling our own unique besetting sins. The promise is that one day, every limp will pass away. The explosive anger won't always be there. that unwanted desire for people of the same sex, for those who have been washed in the blood of Christ, won't always be there. One day, limps will pass away, sinful cravings will vanish, the vestiges of brokenness and rebellion will be eradicated from our hearts, and we will be made finally, perfectly, exclusively, and totally holy. We will be set apart for Christ's own possession. And every believer should long for that day. There's some stuff I'm just going to have to cut because we don't have time. I've already gone over. I want to leave you with this quote from Wesley Hill. He's a pastor who experiences same-sex attraction. I would commend him to you as a pastor because although he experiences the temptation of same-sex attraction, he does not act it out. In other words, it's possible to be a Christian who struggles with these things. While at the same time, Paul would say it's not possible to be a Christian who actively lives these things out. This is what he says. When God acts climactically to reclaim the world and raise our dead bodies from the grave, there will be no more homosexuality. But until then, we hope for what we do not see, washed and waiting. That is my life my identity as one who is forgiven and spiritually cleansed, and my struggle as one who perseveres with a frustrating thorn in the flesh, looking forward to what God has promised to do. Providence, I want us to be a place where people like Wesley, where people like Rosario could come through the doors and experience real authentic gospel welcome. Not not a formal welcome, 
not a plastic smile. Authentic expressions of the love of Christ. I want us to be that place. And if you're hearing this online or you're here in the audience right now, and you would categorize yourself as GLBT, someone struggling with same-sex attraction, you don't even know how you would categorize yourself, I want you to know this is a safe place where you can come for help. This is a safe place where you can receive counsel, where we will present the gospel to you in all of its beauty, and we will walk with you for however long it takes to see the gospel working its way into your heart and working its way out in your life. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we are all washed and waiting. We have been washed by the blood of your Son. You have plunged each of us beneath that cleansing flow. And you have washed our stains away. And Lord, for those of you, for those of us who have entrusted our lives to your Son, who have repented and believed in the gospel, we also feel and know that we are waiting for the completion of redemption. God, we ask for grace, assuring grace, preserving grace, persevering grace, strength to continue the fight of faith as we wait for the return of your Son. Lord, we are waiting, and at the same time, our hearts are crying out, Come, Lord Jesus. We want to be done with sin. And God, I pray for those here, those listening, consumed by homosexuality, who would identify themselves first, foremost, maybe exclusively as gay, those who in the secret of their home, wonder who and what they are. Lord, I pray that you would break in with the power of your gospel. Reveal to them the beauty of your son, Jesus. Reveal to them the darkness of their sin and the offer of redemption. And Lord, empower your church to walk with them, lovingly, patiently, and compassionately, pointing them to the truth of your word do this for the glory of your son Jesus for the joy of all your redeemed Amen